HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, the new pantry staple brand bringing proud, loud Asian flavors into your kitchen. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Roxana Saidi, founder of Tash, the first true pistachio milk in the U.S. Tash is two months old, but has been a five-year journey and is now available online and in over 150 retail plus coffee shop locations. Welcome, Roxana. Thanks so much, Allie. I'm so happy to be here. I know. I'm really happy you're here, and I feel like I've been... We've been talking about when you would come on the podcast, even before, you know, way before you launched. But I feel like (laughs) when you were sort of in the trenches trying to figure a lot of this stuff out. So even though I haven't been a part of your five-year journey, I feel like I've been part of like the last, I don't know, 18-month journey Mm -hmm. of the five years. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was thinking to myself, oh, if I could only just get to the point where it would make sense for me to be on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And here you are, you know. Here I am. Um, so, I mean, I really do want to, I want to talk a lot about sort of how you cracked the supply chain code, because I do think that that is sort of the crux of the story. And I mm-hmm. think for a lot of founders with great ideas, figuring out the logistics of those ideas is oftentimes where they get stuck and, and sometimes where they give up. Um, but before all that, I want to talk a little bit about you and uh, how you grew up, you know, what your relationship with brands and food and, and why, you know, why are you now the queen of pistachio milk? Where did it all begin? <laughs> yes. So I was born in San Francisco, and um, when I was about seven, my parents decided to move closer to Silicon Valley, where my dad worked. And um, I was just a devastated little girl. I was such a city girl. I was very much in my element in San Francisco. And when they moved to Menlo Park, I thought, oh, what is this? like capture the flag and a cul-de-sac is nice at all, but like, I like having food everywhere. And like, just, I grew up eating what my parents ate. So my first word was juice. I came in at a whopping nine pounds in an ounce. I was obsessed with everything. I ate what they ate, starting with like spicy Thai food and Persian food. My dad's Iranian. 
I was eating mussels, clams, calamari, you name it. And so in my world, it was never like... Kid you know, food and grown-up food, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was one and the same. And it wasn't like, oh, here, try this. Like, let's, you know, push you and incentivize you, get you motivated. Like, you know, you get dessert if you try it. I was just like, you right. have it, I want it. Let's go. Right. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I grew up in Menlo Park, which was very different than the Menlo Park that it is today. It was much more quiet and quaint, um, but it was it was really interesting. Um, we were just a stone's throw from Sand Hill Road, so in my house, it was always VC, round, fundraise, because my dad was a startup founder, um, mm, so he founded mm-hmm. and exited three startups himself, and what he was making was like the main chip in cell phones, so he would always say things like yeah, you know, we're working on this new idea. Um, There's going to be cameras in your cell phone soon. And we'd say, why would we need that? Right, (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You are on to precisely nothing, Dad. And, you know, of course, lo and behold, that was the complete opposite, but, um, right. That's like me. I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but I'm literally like the person that's like the VHS, like forget (laughs) that Betamax is where it's at. And then like the CD, who needs that? Like you've got your cassettes and, and that was like, I mean, talk, people listening probably don't even know what a VHS is, right? (laughs) Like that, I mean, forget about like Netflix and streaming and whatnot. I I'm like such a Luddite that it's, it's actually a joke among many people that I know. So I can only imagine him saying there's going to be a camera in the cell phone and being like, well, that seems like a silly idea, you know? <laughs> like, who Exactly. Like we were just like, it's great. we were like, okay, dad, like we wish you all the best and it sounds right. interesting, but don't right. know if that's going to you know, be the hit that you think it's going to be. <laughs> right. Don't put uh, an alarm clock in there either because no one needs <laughs> that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the weather, we're good on that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I went and I actually, I, I went out of state for college. Um, mm-hmm. at the time, a ton of my friends, um, you know, rightfully so wanted to go to UC schools and I wanted to do something really different. So I went to Boulder and it was wonderful. It's beautiful town. I had a really great experience. I studied business there. Um, loved it all around. And uh, while I was at Boulder, I would spend my summers in LA doing marketing internships and fashion, kind of merging my two passions. And at that time, it was the early 2000s, um, business and fashion as it related to marketing was really limited. So it was mostly PR internships. So I did a bunch of those I enjoyed it a lot, but once I graduated and I got into the actual career of PR, I realized it wasn't at all a fit for me. I was miserable. <laughs> and to give you an idea of what it, what that looked like at the time, it was, um, here's your, your denim client. You need to get it on Nicole Richie and Paris Hilton. Like, mm-hmm. make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, all right, this, this, is, not, this is not what I set, up, what I set out right. to do. So at around that time, it was just at the most nascent stage of social media for brands, like barely coming on the radar. And right. I asked my boss, who ran the boutique PR agency, I said, you know, like, I think that Twitter and Facebook and these platforms are actually have a lot of staying power. And I think that a lot of your clients could actually benefit. Like, I don't mind doing it in my lunch nights, like in my own spare time. But this really interests me. Like, do you mind? She's like, no, like, that's great. I have no interest in it. I don't think it's really anything. (laughs) Again, I don't think it's really going to be a thing. But if you want to, by all means. So I started doing that for the clients. And at the same time, I was talking to my dad and I was just like, dad, I I really, I I can't do PR anymore. Like it's killing me. And he was like, well, look, I'll support you if you go get your MBA. Otherwise, you've got to figure it out on your own. So I kind of went back and forth on that for a while. And finally, after about a, six months, I said, okay, <laughs> deal. I'll go, I'll go study for my GMAT and we'll go get my MBA. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I'm 24, 25 years old. I have no plan. And you know, when you go to get your MBA at any of these schools I was looking at, like UCLA, USC, everybody there is going there with a plan. And so I felt really unsure of the decision and I was actually like completely against it. I thought like, you know, maybe at 28, 29, if I have a purpose and I know what I'm like my business plan and what I'm trying to get out of the experience, then that makes sense. So as I was taking my GMAT and 
studying away. My old boss came back to me and said, Hey, like I'm in trouble. Like all the clients that you were doing these social accounts for, like they are looking for somebody to take over. Like, can you do it in your spare time? And so I said, yes, I can. Like it doesn't take all my time to study for the GMAT. And so I said, well, are you okay if I like formalize this because I would need to get an LLC and I would need to, you know, taxes and all this stuff. She's like, yeah, go for it. So by the time <laughs> so it was... So is Instagram up at this point? Is it 2012 yet? Or So it's... this is 2010 going into 2011. Right. So Instagram didn't even exist. It didn't. No. Wow. Um, and so when it came time to like really like decide on a school and, and, and like put up a tuition check, I kind of like propositioned my dad and said, look, like we can either spend X... Or we can see, we can give me like a couple years to, to build this out. I already have fly, uh, a client roster of five and, and see if it really turns into something. And truthfully, he was like, this social media stuff is a passing fad. <laughs> he did? Wait, no way. <laughs> the guy who was like, there's going to be cameras in the cell phones yeah. didn't think social media was, had sticking power? He's That's just- so funny. You know, he has a master's degree. His, all his brothers have master's degree. He comes from... He was into you know, hardware. Yeah. Of course. And it was yeah. like, he was an engineer and it was like, you go get your master's. It's going to be, you have a safety net there. Like, this is what you're meant, you need to do. And, um, but luckily he said, you know what, try it out. You have time, like, see how it goes. So that kind of, it the whole thing blew up, right? Like Instagram came along. I had this like funnel of clients um, coming to me from my old boss. So it was like a lot of brands that like are still around now, like one teaspoon and for love and lemons. And then that grew into getting accounts like, um, forward by Elise Walker and Fred Siegel. And then bigger accounts came like Fairmont hotels. And so it was really exciting. And, and it was just, it was the wild west. Right. So it was like all these accounts were coming to me and they were, they'd never had an agency before on social. Um, so I started hiring a bunch and I kind of built it into this boutique sized agency. But at the same time, it was, it was also, I, I got burnt out after about five years because I was growing this business. It was changing on a monthly basis, had to learn, you know, the landscapes, had to train my team on them, client management. It was just very hard at 25. So I had desperately wanted to live in New York my whole life. So finally at 29, I said, all right, it's now and never, let's just do it. And so my brother had moved to New York from San Francisco really quickly for a great job. And so um, I'd been toying with the idea for a while. And so I slowly sort of disassembled my agency and I let like, um, I, and I decided like if I, if I wanted to rebuild the agency on the East Coast at some point in time, that I could do that. And so I moved to New York and I just started doing some consulting and it was more across like brand strategy as a whole. Um, and I was just back in like my happy, you know, no more cars, no more traffic, just, so I was thrilled. And to this day, I mean, even though times are so challenging right now in New York city and across the whole world, but especially this country, um, I have such love for, for New York. So I'm always, I'm happy I did it. (laughs) And we always bounce back. Exactly. Um, so it was during that sort of break where you started thinking about milking pistachios it was. Yeah. It was. Um, so I was pretty much, I wasn't looking for a career change by any means. I had never thought about um, switching to the product side of things. I'd always been in the service in the agency world. And um, th- the story goes, it was 2015. I had just moved to New York. And at that point in time, like a lot of people, um, kind of phased out dairy milk. And I was drinking a ton of almond milk. I was eating a ton of Justin's almond butter at the time. And I went on a family vacation to visit um, some some of my dad's family in Paris. And we were sitting around having a very typical long Parisian lunch and actually quite a bit of wine involved and just a really nice long Saturday lunch. And at the end of it, I was really craving my go-to at the time, an almond milk latte, mm-hmm. but it was 2015. So almond Paris milk hadn't... probably, yeah, Paris was like, what no is way. this you speak of? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> they were like, absolutely do, not. Do not. We don't have, have the that. milk of almond. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I just had the classic light bulb moment and I thought, wait, hold on. I, my uncle is going to have bowls and bowls of pistachios back at his flat. Like, 
couldn't I do the exact same process and make pistachio milk? Because I've been eating them my entire life. Like I joke, like in Persian households, it's like toilet paper. Like you have yeah. to have the pistachios <laughs> on hand. Like it's right. not a question. And so I just started, like I did the, the DIY blogs Googling and I was like, all right, this is straightforward. Like you get a cheesecloth or, or, and all right, let's go. And so I started making it. I gave it to friends. I gave it to friends and friends. I really wanted to make sure people weren't just like, you know, blowing smoke up the ass and, and really wanted to get some people who weren't even almond milk or nut milk drinkers. I wanted like the average person to say like, this is great or this sucks. And time and time again, I kept getting, whoa, this is really good. This is good enough to drink by itself with like a totally incredulous look on their face. Like, whoa, like what's happening in here? And so from there, I was, I was just really interested to figure out why it wasn't already in the market. Right. Because that, I mean, and that's, that's the big question, right? I mean, first of all, I'm curious because I mean, how, how different is it from almond milk just from a, you know, there's still a shell are they, do they grow more often in more places? Obviously I know waters, you, you know, almonds use a ton of water. Um, so from an environmental perspective, there's always been the question there, but yeah, why, I mean, why wouldn't, why wouldn't it have been out there? Like what, yeah. it, what did you come up with? It's actually obvious, but it's only obvious if you are somehow in this industry and it's just supply chain. So securing supply chain of really high quality pistachios at an approachable price is mm -hmm. exceptionally challenging. Right. Um, right. I had no idea. I didn't know this. Um, I knew that pistachios were priced higher than most other nuts. I knew they were considered premium. Um, but I didn't know that that was the reason standing between, you know, why a product like a pistachio milk wasn't in market. Honestly, early on, I was kind of thinking I would eventually, if I did enough research, I would come across, you know, this big, huge issue like, oh, pistachio is the only one that doesn't work because X company tried it and failed. And so it wasn't that. It was, it was totally supply chain. And um, to, your, to your question about um, comparison with almonds and where they've grown, pistachios are actually grown all over the world, but most prominently in the Middle East and actually in California, also in Spain, Sicily, et cetera. Um, but pistachios, I always make the the comparison to grapes, um, you know, on the surface, you might think like, oh, this grape from France kind of resembles this grape from New Zealand. Like maybe they would taste similar, but it's really nuanced and it's, and you can have vastly different tasting, um, pistachio milks, which was shocking even to me. And so when we spent over a year R and Ding our formula, we ran all these different types of pistachios on like side by side trials. And the very interesting thing was that the California pistachios produced an entirely different tasting pistachio milk. So much so that like they didn't even both like compare to the Middle Eastern ones, which we were using, it didn't even taste like the same product. It really tasted night and day. And so much so that when I would give them to friends and we'd have all these samples and I would want to like, you know, make sure they were consumed because they had a short shelf life. We had a hard time getting people to drink and keep the California kinds because um, it just wasn't as delicious and it didn't have that depth of flavor and it unfortunately had a really long, unpleasant aftertaste. So yep. it's interesting. Pistachios are actually much more complex than they look like on the surface. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I want to talk about that after the break because we've even noticed like with our tahini, every, it's not even just that like tahini from, you know, sesame seeds from Egypt are different from, you know, sesame seeds from Israel or whatever it is, it's that every batch that you get is almost different. So when you're making a product that is sort of formula-based, based on, you know, the percentage of the tahini, for example, it can actually vary. Um, you're never going to get exact, exact, you know, batch to batch across time. You're going to have a, a fairly standardized product, but unless you are actually, you know, even tomatoes, right? Like if you think about, you know, a can of a can of Muti tomatoes isn't exactly the same as the can before it. And it's funny because people on the consumer side of things, um, you would never think that things would be 
something that's standardized that you buy in a package, you would think that it would always be the same. But if it's if it's like a living, breathing thing and it's and it comes from nature, which, you know, hopefully the stuff that we're making does, then there's just always going to be some sort of variability. And the trouble from a supply chain perspective is that you have to make sure that that source that you're getting it from, like once you chose this particular type of pistachio, now you have to make sure that they are available when you need them to be and that they have capacity to fulfill your orders and all that stuff. So I do want to get into that um, after, but I want to hear sort of how, when it when did you know that like, okay, this is actually going to be a thing and I am going to be a product and I can be on in the sauce? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Great question. I would say there's probably two moments. I think I had never experienced like a light bulb moment to this degree ever in my life. Like it was, it was unlike anything else. And so in that moment, I felt very differently about what I had just stumbled upon. And I knew it was, it was different than any idea I've ever had or any business. And this was actually my third business. Um, so at that moment, I knew that there was a lot of um, potential, but I would say when I knew that it was a real thing and that I was going to eventually get on in sauce, it was probably um, after our first full production run and we had the product delivered and I had it in my hands in New York and I, tasted it in that moment I was like okay this is it's real yeah 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 amazing um okay we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back and talk about all of it this episode is brought to you by Omsom the new pantry stable brand bringing proud loud Asian flavors into your kitchen Omsom partners with iconic Asian chefs to craft rip-and-pour starters that pack all the specialty sauces, aromatics, and seasonings needed to cook restaurant-quality Asian dishes in under 30 minutes. No more diluted dishes, no more cultural compromise. Just old Asian flavors sitting in your pantry right between the tomato sauce and olive oil. Learn more at omsom.com. That's O-M-S-O-M dot com. I'm back with Roxana Saidi from Tash Pistachio Milk. Um, okay, so we started talking about supply chain. And, um, you know, I, I guess, how did you solve it? Like how, you know, I was reading that, you know, A, it's hard finding the finding the right price, B, um, making sure that, you know, they, they can supply to you. Um, and also just sort of... Um, you know, the, the minimum order quantities for the co-man, you know, figuring out how to keep it, you know, I mean, is it shelf stable? Is that, is it, or is it? It is. Yes. Yeah. So it's figuring that out, right. There's like, there were several steps to making this a product that not only, um, was viable, but that, you know, you could make more than three of. Um, right. So, so, you know, and then, I mean, it has to be at a price point, where you can at least be in the same realm as the Oatleys and the Califias of the world. Um, exactly. So how, how, how did you go about, was it just you? Were you just like, okay, these are the four challenges and here I'm going to just keep banging down doors? Yeah. So everything that you just covered was a, about a four-year process. Um, it was it was step-by-step, piece-by-piece. It, you know... It, as it tends to happen, one complexity leads to another set of complexities. And it, it took a long time. Um, it was primarily me with a little bit of help from my father. So the very first step was, okay, where are we going to source these these pistachios from? And so my father grew up in Tehran. Um, some of his family, or I'm sorry, his brother, some of our family um, are still back in the Middle East. Um, and so the first step was going to our network and our community and the folks that you know my dad has been close with and knows. And so fortuitously, we found a few suppliers um, that had the exact kind of quality we wanted and at a price point that worked for us. So once we knew our cost of goods for the pistachio piece, it was really important to me that 
before I leapt into this and, you know, kind of did like a, a total career shift, I wanted to make sure that we were able to develop a product that was at an approachable price point, not far off from Oatly. And uh, so at this point, actually, Oatly hadn't even come over from Sweden right. yet. That's how long right. ago it was. Yeah. Um, but I knew that like, if it was a $10 thing that only some people could afford at Erewhon, that wasn't what I was going to do. Like it, it, that would have been fine. And, and there's that market for sure. But for me, it was important that I found out ahead of time before jumping in. And so I was able to find through a formulator, a consultant who had been the head buyer for 7-Eleven North America for 30 years. And so we had her do a cost analysis for us based on our cost of goods of the pistachios. And so she took um, probably, I don't know, six weeks or so, and she did a full analysis of every single channel, what our margins would be, what our SRP wow, would be. Wow, that's so cool. It was it was the greatest because I also upfront learned so much about right. each channel that I would have it would have been delay, delaying me learning about these things. And it was great that I got a handle on them at the very beginning. Let's break that down a little bit because I think sure. that is actually like super, super good advice. I mean, I spend a lot of time on this show talking about like, know your margins, don't make, you know, know your competition, know that you're not going to be, you know, double the price and, you know, half the size. But this is like by channel, knowing your margins. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, was that all just like gobbledygook to you when she first did it? Like, were oh, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was so, like, I'd call my dad and I'd say, I, I, I need her to tell me what every single acronym on this thing means. Like, we need to go line by line on the spreadsheet and she needs to say in layman's terms what we're looking at. I didn't know that like, you know, this distributor in this channel is going to want 15, but this one over here is going to want 40 and this one's over here is going to, you know, right, it right. was all brand new. And she was sweet enough to, to literally handhold through the whole thing. And I'd have to go back like later on and be like, I'm sorry, l- let me just make sure. Right. Like, <laughs> so cause it's high a level. Lot. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, without sort of, but so, because I think the people listening to this are like, that sounds like a dream probably to them high level. What would you say are like the three things that you felt like armed with coming out of that, that you think that everyone should know, right? Like, Right now, people aren't necessarily going to go find this woman and like build out like a, you know, here's our wholesale. These are the four different distributors that do wholesale. Here are the different margins that those distributors use. That's like almost overkill. But what what would you say, you know, are were critical things that you needed to know that you found out in that process? Yes. Two, two of them. And they're tied in terms of importance. First is um, understanding your margin by channel. Um, understanding what, especially if you're going out and raising capital, what investors are looking for and what they want to see for, as a margin each channel. And don't think that like you know if it's if it's lower than like the industry average or or, or what you've heard, it's okay. If you have a path to get there. Don't you know kind of drop the whole idea if you're not where you need to be at the get-go, but understand your margin by channel. And then as important to that, when I went into this, I kind of thought like, okay, you know, I want to be in this store in retail. I want to have this e-com, like, you know, Thrive Market. I want to be direct to consumer. I want to do food service so that the best coffee shops are set. Just like, yeah, I'm going to do them all, but I'll be selective and I'll, you know, I'll have a team and, and, but we'll do them all. I could not recommend that any less. Right. Um, <laughs> each is its own three ring circus. So understanding from the get go, what you're cutting out. I like to say oftentimes strategy is what you don't do. Yep. Totally. So what you are not doing and what you won't be doing maybe ever, or, you know, for the first five years or whatever. So both of those were the most important thing. And, and honestly, the, the latter, I didn't learn until we got much closer to launch. Um, but those would be the two, the, the two biggest yeah. takeaways. No, I mean, I think it's funny cause you know, at Havens, we always talk about how we sort of did things in reverse. Like we launched, we didn't even have like a launch exactly. We just kind of started selling our sauces in our refrigerator, you know, and then, and then we were at Whole Foods and it wasn't until COVID really that we got our like D to C head on. 
Um, and we still are a little unclear, like the way that you look at a P&L for wholesale is very different, right? And the inputs are very different from the way that you look at a P&L for D to C. And then even wholesale, you know, we're now at the point where we're breaking it down. Like what we're spending at Kroger on trade is different from what we're spending at Whole Foods on trade, right? And the way that we get there and the distributors that we use, like you do end up kind of narrowing in because what you don't want to do is end up feeling really good about your sales and then looking back and being like, oh, wait, whoops, you know, I spent, you know, 40% trade spend on this one account and, you know, it, it turned out okay, but you know, that's never a good, um, so I think that's a really, that is very good advice in terms of knowing by channel and you don't have to, what they call boil the ocean at once. Right. And I think there are a lot of people out there that say that food service is great because it's volume and you're just making a ton of stuff. But if you're not building the brand really early on in the history of the business, it's, it is its own beast and it can be tough on a margin side and it, it feels a little bit like not the right way to build it. Right. Unless you are truly a food service product. Right. But any of us that are building consumer brands you know, it sounds appealing to make a lot, to, to make a lot of whatever it is, in my case, sauce and um, have it be private labeled by someone just so it's out there and you're getting volume. But again, if you're not out there branded, what are you building? Um, and then in terms of investors, you knew that you were going to, I mean, beverage in general, but it sounds like this especially was the kind of thing that was not a bootstrap from, you know, type of business. Like you knew that you wanted to go find cash to, to really fund the first year or so. Yeah. So in the first year, I, I had no idea what I was up against. Um, I was reading all these books and listening to a ton of podcasts and the, the advice was always like, okay, start small, you know, get product market fit, get all the feedback you can, get in the um, farmer's markets, build relationships with like your mom and pops, like really gather all the data and like tweak and iterate and improve. And I was like, yes, got this, love it. And then I was like, but I want to do a barista blend. And I was really committed to this. I was adamant. I wanted it to be you know, to froth. I wanted it to taste good with coffee, with matcha. I'm a big coffee person. My mom gave me my first latte when I was like seven. She hates when I say that, but it's the truth. Um, and so everyone's like, Ooh, okay. Like, well, if you want to do that and then you have to go aseptic and I'm thinking what's aseptic and it sounds bad. (laughs) Right. They're like, no, you just, there's not a lot of folks who do aseptic. You're going to need to be in Tetra pack just these paper cartons. Um, so, okay. Like, let us know if you change your mind and you want to be extended shelf life and be in plastic or glass or whatever. So I started just cold calling, you know, Googling, there's probably only about eight to 10 of them in North America at that time. And so I'm just calling, giving my pitch, just being a marketer and and just trying to sell it. And every time, you know, we love your idea, but, um, our minimum is 250,000 units. Um, let us know when you are ready to move forward with that MOQ and, you know, we'll get the paperwork over to you. And here's, I mean, first of all, that's insane, 250,000 units, but this was, so you were basically going to get them pistachios and then they were going to make the milk per your formula and package it, or did you make it and then you sent it to get packaged? Yeah, the former, the former. So after we got the the cost analysis done, um, we hired a beverage formulation team. So they developed four formulas for us, which is the original, which has just six grams of added sugar, an unsweetened, and then a vanilla original and a vanilla unsweetened. So at this point, I was dual pathing the formulation work and trying to find a co-packer. And so... Um, yes, the co-packer would, would take our formula, we'd source all the ingredients, and then they would make an exorbitant number of Tash cartons. And did um, anyone know, were any of the co-packers, did they know how to, I'm presuming they were making almond milk, perhaps? Or yeah. Were they, yeah, they were, right, okay. They were making almond milk, and then oat milk was on the scene at this point, so oat milk was really taking off. Um, 
slightly different production process, but they all were pretty familiar with it. They were like, oh, that's interesting. Like we haven't been like, no one's done pistachio yet. Like, how are you able to do that? Um, (laughs) so I would try and say like, and you know, being first to market and creating a new category, there's a lot of upside for you. So maybe you'd consider reducing your MOQ a bit and all the ones all the biggest guys said no because they have the luxury of not having to bet, yeah, of right? Yeah, course, right. Yeah, so finally I I got in contact with the owner of one of the smaller operations and he said, you know, Roxana, I, I'm not going to tell you that you won't be able to do this, but to do what you want to do, you need a minimum of one closer to $2 million. And so at that point I was just like, oh man, <laughs> okay, here we go. Another sort of hurdle and it's a big one, but okay, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. So at that point, I, that's when I like really, you know, came back to my dad and I said, you know, he had been, he had been involved, but he didn't know what it was going to take at this point and that we would have to do a big funding round. And it was really going to take a ton of, of time and energy to, 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 to make this thing a reality. And so luckily this time around, unlike my social media agency, he said, you know, I really, I, I see a ton of potential in this and, and I really believe in it and, um, let, let's do it. And so, hmm. yeah. So he's your co-founder. He's my co-founder. I love that. I it's, love that. It's great. I, I have lots of, you know, fun anecdotes because now also my fiance is also part of the team. So we have a very family oriented small business. Was your fiance <laughs> part of the team before you were fianced or did they become your fiance after working together? So we got <laughs> engaged two weeks before COVID hit. Okay. He was working in partnerships and sales for a hotel technology app at the time. So that obviously didn't go well when COVID hit. And I kind of took it as an opportunity. I was like, all right, well, I need the help. You have a skill set that doesn't overlap with me or my dad. We're going to need sales and, and partnership help. Like, do you want to, you know, join the team? And Aww. he did. And he, he didn't even hesitate. And so... That's when we became a team of three. And, Love it. Um, yeah, it's been really great. Um, and so are you still a team of three? We are still a team of three, but we are getting ready to start hiring, which is exceptionally ex- exciting. But it's it's also challenging right now, I'm not going to lie, because I'm in Brooklyn. Kyle's, Kyle and I are in Brooklyn. My father's in San Francisco, and so we're like... D- is it important to us that the new team members in New York is remote totally fine? You know, it's it's all uncharted territory. I do have someone, I have um, one of the founders of Mudwater coming on in a couple of weeks. Is it Specifically, Shane? no, Paul. Okay, um, great. Kyle knows spe- Shane. That's why I got yes. excited. No, specifically to talk about hiring. <gasps> um yeah, because I don't think that we've done enough of it on the podcast. And I, I, I think, honestly, that's just because I, I, the podcast kind of follows Havens a little bit. And, like, we are now hiring three people at the same time and onboarding people in the pandemic. And it's – the process has been very – it's an intense process and it's more overwhelming. And it also brings up a lot of sort of stuff, you know, Um so I'm looking forward to talking about that on that episode. But for now, the three of you guys, um, I mean, so basically did you, so you, you raised your money and you made 100,000 cases or 100,000 units, I guess, right? I hope. Yeah, it was just <laughs> under that, but yes. Of milk. Mm-hmm. And did you have people to sell it to or are you like, okay, now the clock starts and we got to sell this stuff? Somewhere in the middle. Um, I'd spent a lot of time pre-pandemic, like really building relationships with a lot of the coffee shops in the tri-state area, some of which were, you know, 20 plus doors, like sizable chains for the area. And when COVID hit, you know, all those conversations came to a screeching halt and they were struggling. And so it was just abundantly clear that it wasn't really a 50-50 split of like, all right, we're direct consumer and we're also food service. Like we're 90% direct to consumer when 10% of us, our efforts are in food service. So it was tough because, you know, we were luckily had over the five years of, of me building this, I was starting to grow like a real community of people who were really excited and really anxious for this product to hit the market. 
And so word of mouth was actually really powerful for us. Um, we layered on PR and we layered on social media and email marketing. Um, but I really wanted to understand our baseline as on direct to consumer without doing the paid side of things, which I think is really important. And at the time it felt pretty risky knowing that we had just under a hundred thousand units, uh, sitting in a warehouse that needed to get sold. The good thing is, is that with a shelf life of 12 months, you have quite a, a long period of time and you don't have the spoilage and the buybacks and all the things that can happen. But I do um, think that's a very good point. I mean, we did something similar where when we launched it, first of all, we were worried that it wasn't going to work. Like people weren't going to get the right package. People weren't going to get it refrigerated. You know, Shopify would end up messing, you know, we, we, I think anything, you don't just press go and, you know, start the ads on the same day. And, and like, I think, I mean, I know that there are people that have done that and it's been greatly successful, but I do think it's good advice to sort of get a little bit of a baseline, work out some of your glitches, similar to sort of the advice about like, not necessarily going global with Whole Foods before you like figure out a few regions Similarly, you know, take a couple of weeks to figure out what your D2C kind of organically looks like and and what it looks like with a little press and then turn on those ads because I think the ads are they're addictive um in the sense that they will bring sales. The question is will they bring, you know, profitability, right? And that's where I think you know, if you care about profitability, you want to, you do want to be careful. So I think that's very good advice. And, and what happened when, because yeah, I mean, I understand I had Mike Messersmith from Oatly on here. And I remember when we had Haven's Kitchen, we were one of the first coffee shops to have Oatly and people were offering our baristas 20 bucks. Their firstborn. Yeah. Like (laughs) for like, no, yeah. Like they're like, I just can't, I buy the, you know, can't I buy the carton? Um, and that was like at the time where like people were selling it on Amazon or like on eBay or whatever it was, there was like this big Oatly thing. Um, but you didn't have the opportunity to have that kind of, you know, and they were very deliberate with that. They made sure that people, it wasn't even available for retail or D2C. It was just in coffee shops and they grew awareness that way. And then they made it available and that worked for them. But you in COVID, it makes sense. There, the coffee shops weren't that way. So how? So you did focus on D to C to start, and I mean, was it just? Was it literally just like building word of mouth and a little bit of PR? Like, how did you get it? How did you get anyone to notice you? Yeah. So the end result of of our first six weeks, we launched in November eighteenth. So first of all, there was. We were supposed to launch earlier in November, but as we all distinctly remember, the election news cycle turned into something else. So we had to day by day assess if our original date still made sense and it increasingly made less and less sense. So we just ha- we had to be nimble and we ended up doing it on November 18th, which was wedged right between the election and holiday. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so it was a, it was wild, but We wound up doing, um, we outpaced our projections by 300% and we had just an enormous, like warm reception and and overwhelmingly positive reviews and a bunch of inbound requests from wholesale accounts. And so we ended up the year in 150 doors. Mostly. Yeah, that's kind of amazing, right? I mean, that's a lot for, you know, being a November 18th launch. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, we were even kind of a little shocked ourselves still. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> you just don't know, right? You have your model, you have your projections, you feel good about them, um, but you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so I think it was it was that we had so many folks who had been you know signed up on our, our waiting list on our splash page that was up for three years. I gave so much money to Squarespace. <laughs> right. <laughs> for, for two lines of text. Um, and, you know, our PR agency did a great job. I did a lot of interviews that day. And yeah, there was just a genuine interest of what is this new milk? You know, I've tried to, every milk has been done at this point, right? Like it's a saturated market, but a lot of folks were really vocal about, hey, this is better for the environment. 
It doesn't have added oil like Oatly. And on top of that, it's delicious enough to drink on its own. So wrap those three things up and there was a lot of curiosity and um, luckily we were able to capture that. Yeah, no, it's incredible. And so where are you now? So you're, you're going to hire... Um, are you focused on ops or marketing or sales? Are you thinking about, you know, getting on shelves of, you know, bigger retail chains? Like what, what are the priorities really for you for the next couple months? So we're really focused on optimizing our direct to consumer channel as much as we can, which brings about potentially a higher there. Um, I think like a, uh, chief of staff, head of people, whatever the title is. I think that's super important. Um, I, I have so much to learn, so I'm looking forward to that podcast in a few weeks, but <laughs> um, we're probably higher between two to three people this year. Um, and then building more accounts. So we're, we're already headed out West, which is a little ahead of schedule, but um, we're staying focused in food service. So um, basically, for us, distribu- distributor partners look like um, those who are focused in coffee shops, matcha bars, um, sort of high-end bodegas, cafes, that those types. Um, and then I think for Tash, the next sort of thing that will happen is um, rolling out our vanilla and our vanilla unsweetened, which we're really excited about. Um, and retail is, is probably a few years off realistically speaking. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, they're going to want it. And that, I think that's the most fun, you know, like we're going to be launching a new line and it's not, it's like exclusively D to C. Um, and are you going to do Amazon? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. So initially we intended to do Amazon this year, but we're actually, we're going to hold off on that as well. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're kind of looking forward to, you know, some of the buyers instead of being like, hi, buyer, please take a chance, take a, you know, like we promise people want <laughs> yeah. this, look at the consumer, they really need this. Right. Um, we're kind of looking forward to them being like, what's this new product you have? Can we put it on the shelf? And us being like, I don't know, we'll see. Um, kind of exciting. Um, so you know, for the last question, you know, you gave a couple of really, really good, just sort of tactical, um, guidelines for people, but, you know, I would love what you would say, you know, to someone just starting out or just, you know, six months behind you, four years behind you with a great idea, you know, best advice you've gotten or what you wish someone would have told you. Yeah. I would say, honestly, my story perhaps if nothing else, is just to stay at it even when it feels just insurmountable. It might take five years like it did for me, and that's okay. Um, I think kind of one of the silver linings of of the pandemic, and there, you know, I kind of say this with mixed, mixed emotions, but I remember feeling um, at times bad about all the headlines of, you know, so-and-so raised X amount in X months. And it was just, it was really um, prominent hearing those types of headlines. And it was just like, well, ugh, the pressure to do it in this time frame that's unrealistic. And there's so much, you know, t- media attention given to it. It's like, I think in my opinion, we've really like, media has really pulled back on that. Yeah, um, I hope so. Yeah, I think it's it, it actually it's not only a lot of pressure, but it sets up a very unrealistic vision of what this whole thing is like. And I think it it brings people in not only who are it's like a double whammy, right, because it brings people in and they think it's going to be easier than it is. So they're kind of they quit their day job too soon. But then it it also sets them up for feeling really terrible about themselves for something that actually, you know, they shouldn't, right? And and I actually, it, this whole sort of founder worship, entrepreneurship, sort of glamorizing thing is something I talk about a lot because it fundamentally is just not real. Yes, there are outliers and they end up getting a lot more press attention because 
these two dudes raised whatever and, you know, all these VC funds and la la la. But that is not the story of the vast majority of food businesses, you know, across the country. So and you bring up a good point. I I kept my I was consulting on a number of clients up until the very last second until we were ready to do that production run. I was still working my day job, like doing all kinds of client work. And um, I think that like it's it if you do that for longer than you anticipate, that's fine. It's just, you know. Yeah, I agree with you on the glamorization of the other stuff is amazing. Well, Roxana, um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really fun just to watch your journey, you know, from the sidelines cheering you on. Um, For everyone out there who wants to try it, uh, Tash is available at, and this is amazing, (laughs) pistachiomilk.com. I love that you got that <laughs> URL. Everybody kind of always amazing. asks me, what did you pay for that? And I say, $15. Right. No one was using <laughs> no one it wanted because it. it wasn't a thing. Um, yeah. That's amazing. So go to pistachiomilk.com, get your Tash. And um, Roxana, thank you again so much for coming on. Um, Amanda, thank you for uh, engineering, for being flexible about time. Um, and listeners, thank you guys all for continuing to listen and send me all your messages. I love it. Um, I thought I would tell you who's coming on next week just to get you excited. Um, we have the founder of Gia coming on, Melanie, which is going to be fun. And then we have um, all about hiring with the Mudwater folks and then a lot of fun stuff about Instacart ads and all sorts of um digital ad stuff um, at the end of February. Uh, So we are rolling with some really fun guests. And um, Roxana, again, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, And I'll be back. Thank you, Allie. That was great. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.